0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Louis
1: XIV presided over the grandest and most extravagant court in Europe. This is the king who built Versailles, who lived his life as a theatrical event, and who, being only five foot three, wore red high-heeled shoes, les talons rouges, and a rather fabulous wig. He was king of France from 1643 until seventeen fifteen, seventy two 72 years and 110 days. He married in June 1660 to Marie-Thérèse of Austria, and he began his personal rule from 1661 because he had been a child when he first came to the throne. And one thing you may know about Louis XIV is that he had a number of mistresses. So today, my guest will help me consider the image, the influence and the insecurity of the French royal mistress. Dr. Linda Kernan-Knowles is adjunct assistant professor at Trinity College, Dublin. She's written about the mistresses of Louis XIV and she helped shape an exhibition in Paris that you can see, if you can get there, at the Centre Culturel Irondé called How to Be Good, that looks into these themes. Linda, it's an absolute joy to talk to you about women in 17th century France, a subject close to my heart. But we're going to be talking about women very different from the ones I've studied. So we're going to be thinking about far more important, is that the word? At least more elite women. We're going to be thinking about them at the court of Louis XIV. Louis XIV. So first of all, could you describe his court to us?
2: So first of all, thanks a million for having me. It's lovely to chat to you today. So to describe the course of Louis XIV, it's a very different political system to any that we would be aware of today, perhaps. It's very complex in the sense that the way that power is distributed throughout the course is dependent really kind of from the centre of power, the king, and Louis really situates himself at this centre. We all know him as the sun king, so he heightens that imagery. And so a lot of the influence is derived from the centre and it flows out into these kind of circles around him. So you have these layers of power and influence that emanate from the centre of the court. And we have this idea about Louis XIV's court and particularly Louis XIV as this absolutist king. So there's very much this arbitrary perhaps practice of power that everything comes from him and he derives his power from divine right and yet it's a much more nuanced system than that. It's one that he has to negotiate and navigate himself. He has to mediate between all these layers of power and yet balance them all out as well at the same time. So it's a very insular world. It is one that grows a lot during his reign. He likes to have his nobility around him. He likes to be able to see them, to surveil them nearly And it's one certainly that they all grow up in it and they all learn that the gesture, the etiquette, the courtesy, the way that they behave is all representative and also demonstrative of the levels of power that they all occupy. So from the king to the royal family, the princes and the princesses of the blood, the higher nobility, the dukes and peers, and then emanating outwards from that.
1: And part of this system of power is this semi-official role of becoming the maîtresse en titre. How should we understand that? What did that mean? How should we even translate the phrase? So it's
2: essentially the titled mistress or the official mistress. And this is the lover of the king, a companion of the king. And during this reign, certainly the romantic companion and later reigns, possibly not, where it is not hidden, where it is not clandestine they are shown to be this companion of the king. Now, the title itself originates in the 1440s with Agnès Sorel, who was the mistress of Charles VII. And that's the first time where you see this person who is not his wife come to the fore and be publicly acknowledged. You have earlier examples like Dion de Poitiers with Henri II and Gabrielle d'Estrie with Henri IV. And they're all very publicly known, presented at the court, So there is a lot of precedence there for Louis XIV's court. So by the time that you see royal mistresses emerging at Louis XIV's court, and almost from an age where he is perhaps sexually active, from his late teens onwards, you have essentially this acknowledgement, this is a woman, she is not his wife, and yet she obviously has this influence over him, she holds a fascination for him. He desires her as well. The kind of idea that she has attracted the gaze of the king, therefore she attracts the gaze and the attention of the rest of the court too. So the matresse en titre, it comes from the word mistress, obviously, and it translates actually from the French over into the English in the 15th century. And it gives this connotation of a woman in the domestic sphere. That's very accurate in relation to a royal mistress, because a royal mistress is always French, and yet the queen is always foreign. And so in that respect, the marriage to a queen is representative of foreign policy, usually, as a means of brokering peace, usually, or at least trying to smooth relations with another major power. And yet the royal mistress is very much a domestic position. She's usually one who represents domestic concerns and within the factions of the nobility then at the court, too.
1: That's a fascinating insight, thinking about actually it's about nationality. I hadn't put those things together, even though, of course, they're all French, his mistresses.
2: Yeah, it's one of the things that when I came to the topic first, when I realised this, I thought, oh, goodness, yeah, this is right. They're all homegrown gals and they're close to the monarchy already for the most part. And in that reason, they're close to the nobility and so they hold a fascination for the nobility, too. Because the nobility have to keep an eye on who is going to ascend, who is going to gain that position and what can be gained through them as a result.
1: So Louis's first official favourite is Louise de la Valliere, who arrived at court in 1661. Tell us about her.
2: She is from a very noble background and she comes to the court as a lady-in-waiting. So she's very much within the eye line of the king. And this is key, the proximity, proximity to the king in order to gain that recognition, but also then to maintain it later on, maintaining this position near the king. So she is not described as very ambitious. She's not described as one of these great beauties either. She's quite a bit younger than the king. I think she might. Be six years or so younger than the king which makes her the youngest of all the mistresses apart from Fontange later on who's a very short-lived one seems to be quite an innocent someone who is regarded as and this is something that's always used for mistresses but I think it's true for her she loves the king as a man I think she's overheard saying if only he were not the king you know and i think he's supposed to have heard this and thought well you know she loves me for me myself and so she in later years has been seen to represent this more innocent and kind of youthful hopeful time of louis's reign that she represents this time before he really becomes the sun king It's very much the springtime almost of the rain. But we're projecting in hindsight then because we know what comes afterwards. And yes, their relationship was very strong from probably 1661 onwards. We don't know too much about her and their relationship because of Louis' mother. Now, Anne of Austria, who had been his regent, is a very powerful figure at the court, and a very powerful figure for him personally. They are deeply, deeply attached to each other. So when she dies in 1666, that really lifts the restrictions on Louis's personal life, any private life he might have. And in that respect, that's when you start to see Louise de la Valliere coming to public recognition. And she has a number of children with the king. She has four two of whom die quite young and in the same year a daughter is born, Marianne, and she becomes very, very well known on the court. Mademoiselle de Blois. She is, I think, a favourite of Louis XIV. So in having children with the king, then obviously that solidifies the position, consolidates her position and is a very significant moment for a mistress because at that point, they are establishing essentially a parallel line, bloodline, alongside the royal family. I mean Louise de la Valliere's position as royal mistress is almost confirmed by the fact that the king is married at this stage. He does have other trysts before his marriage with the Mancini sisters who are the nieces of his prime minister Mazarin but after his marriage then that's when you really enter into a phase where you have a definite queen Marie-Thérèse, Marie-Thérèse she becomes upon marriage and then on the side then the mistress, Louise de la Valliere. So when Louise de la Valliere gives birth to children, that establishes a parallel line, not of succession, but a parallel bloodline for the royal family. And that becomes increasingly significant as time goes on, because Louis goes to great lengths to recognise his children as well. But with Louise, Louise is a very i think benign figure in the history of these court relations she also seems to be a very pious figure she's very very much conflicted in her position she feels that almost to have this relationship with the king because he desires her so much she is performing almost a divine duty he's the one committing the sin really she is committing a sin of sorts too but the onus should be on him in this equation. But for her, she feels, well, I am committing a sin, but you know this is something that I've always been called to by God. So she's so conflicted in all of this eventually, she just keeps running off to the convents. She tries to flee the court several times. And I think the first time, Louis makes a big deal out of it and runs after her, throws on his cloak, hops on the horse and gallops off to the convent. And they have a very tearful reunion as she comes back. The next time she does it, he doesn't bother. He sends someone off to get her instead. And then the third time, he leaves her where she is, which is eventually, I think, in 1674. So really her ascendancy, she's there from... Early 1660s, certainly by 1664, they're very much an item, but they can't really come to the fore because of his mother. 1667 then, she is awarded with a very high-ranking title. She's elevated to a duchess. She's given various estates, very generous pension, as they all are. And yet that is not so much a sign of elevation as it is perhaps a golden handshake. Because at this point in time, someone else has
1: come to his attention. And before we go to her, just I want to pick up on that point about him recognising her children. Does that mean that they're made legitimate but not allowed to succeed? Is that roughly what's happening?
2: Yeah, they're legitimised. Now, with Louise, he recognised her as the mother. And he talks about the esteem that we have for their mother. The two children from that relationship who survived the Comte de Vermandois, he gets into trouble later on, but he dies in his teens. He'd kind of fallen out of his father's favor. Mademoiselle de Blois goes on to have a very lengthy court career. They don't pose problems for the line of succession, but the next set of children do.
1: OK, so the next set of children, now we're moving on to the most fabulously named and indeed fabulous woman, the Françoise Athénaïs de Rochecouard de Montmartre, who is Marquise de Montespan. I think maybe we'll call her Athénaïs or Madame de Montespan. Yeah, <laughs> quite a
2: tongue twister. <laughs> um, tell me about her. She is pretty amazing as a character at the court. She comes from a very, very well-established noble family. And she would have considered herself of a higher rank than the king she pretty much looked down on him at times. So for her, she's a very, very well-known figure at the court already in the 1660s. She's a lady-in-waiting to the Queen. She is, and this is a big problem, she's already married. She had had quite a colourful background already. She had been due to get married to the Duke d'Anton, who was killed in a duel, and then she ended up getting married to his brother. They're married in the early 1660, 1663, I think. And then they have their first child later that year. So they have two children already by the time she comes to the attention of the king. And as lady in waiting to the queen then, she's very visible to the king. She's in that entourage. She's regarded as extremely beautiful. She's always described as having these gorgeous blue eyes, this aquiline nose, just the epitome of beauty ideals at the time and very witty. She has the mortemar esprit, this wit, this vivacity that is apparently captivating. They apparently they have this way about them where, you know, witty conversation is such a mark of prestige at the court. It's a way that you elevate yourself socially, and her family seem to have cornered the market in this. They know exactly how to do this and it's a particular kind of brand. So apparently later on people hate to be seen by her in case she passes some comment on their appearance. So very, very acerbic. She is kind of in the background then while Louis is still in his relationship with Louise de la Valliere and by 1667 it would seem that a relationship has begun between her and the king. There's a point in time where I think they're on manoeuvres with the king. So the entourage is going around with the king and Montespan's there with the queen. But Louise de la Valliere turns up unannounced, uninvited. The king packs her off. He says, what do you think you're doing here? And you were never told. And the queen is in floods of tears. And Montespan responds. She goes, I can't believe she had the audacity to come. And she was like, oh, Lord, save me from ever becoming the mistress of the king. But it's quite clear she probably already was the mistress of the king at that stage. So the feelings of the queen are very much secondary in all of this as well at the time. So Athene then rises quite quickly. Now, the reason why Louise, I think, is kept on at the court is something of a smokescreen then to this relationship. For a time, there's Louis, there's the queen, but there's also two mistresses. There's a handover (laughs) happening at this stage too. So from 1667 to about 1670, there's a bit of a ménage trois, ménage quatre maybe going on at this point. And by 1669, Montespan has probably had her first child with the king. There's a bit of a question mark over that one. We're not entirely sure what happened there. There may have been a girl born and then spirited away, but there's no record of that child. Certainly the next year, the birth of the Duc de Men in 1670. And that's when you start to see Madame de Montespan. then is on the rise very much. And that kicks off a decade of fun and games with Madame de Montespan. really.
1: One thing I'm really struck by is the fact that this must have been so humiliating for Louis' wife, Marie Trez, for his first mistress, Louise de La Valliere, it feels like there's a sort of sequence of embarrassments happening because Louise's attention has moved elsewhere. Do we have any sense of what these women felt or do the sources not really give us that information?
2: With Louise, first of all, there are lots of apocryphal stories, I think, circulating about her. So, for instance, there's a story that the king would go to see Madame de Monsmont and use Louise de la Valliere's apartment as like the walkway, as simply a means to get to the next apartment. And that he would apparently kind of give over Madame de Montespont's dog, I think, for Louise de la Valliere to hold while he went to see her. I get the impression that Louise de la Valliere was actually probably at this point slightly bereft to begin with, but her piety was starting to overtake her too, that she wanted to be away from this situation and she can't bear it. She wants to leave the court. But for Louis, he needs her at the court. He wants her to be there. Because for him, of course, increasingly, he wants the nobility near him. He wants them there. So Louis de la is part of that pack as well. More importantly, though, is the position of the Queen and what the Queen might think in all of this. It seems important to note that Louis is much more sensitive to his mother's feelings than he ever is to his wife's feelings. Maria Teresa, when she first saw Louis, was enraptured. She felt that she was the luckiest princess in Europe, that she had struck gold. And as the Infanta of Spain, she is a very good catch herself. But it was noted by everyone that in terms of maybe looks, that they were not equally matched, that she had done very, very well. And that old story about the royal bridegroom first laying eyes on his wife and calling for a brandy immediately. That was a story that was done around about Maria Therese, that he wasn't quite kind of taken with her. But in saying that, Louis always wanted his mistress, he wanted everyone at the court, to pay due respect to the queen, even if he wasn't respecting his marital vows. There are various points in their marriage where things seem to be going well, They have six children, only one of whom survives to adulthood. And she is very devoted to him. But she doesn't really integrate herself into the French court. She continues to speak Spanish. She never really adopts French culture. So she's quite distinct in her own way, in her own style, from the rest of the court. A very telling thing about her attitude to the mistresses is, it's almost like heartbreaking, it's very sweet in its own way, she doesn't want to see them when they're pregnant. She refuses to have them anywhere near her when they're visibly pregnant. And yet she seems to have doted upon the children themselves when they did arrive, that they were his children. And so therefore she loved them anyway. So it's quite kind of touching that she's like that too. Certainly Madame de Montespan, she has to endure seven pregnancies in the 1670s. So there's a lot of the time where she doesn't want her anywhere near her And yet when they do arrive, then she's quite affectionate to them and quite, you know, taken with them. It's noteworthy as well that by the end of her life, the last year of her life, it would seem that the king had been encouraged, you know, really to pay more attention to her, to be more mindful of her. And she did note herself, the king is spoiling me and the king pays me so much attention. So when Madame de Montespan kind of left the scene, then there seems to have been something of a reconciliation between the king and the queen. But generally speaking, and this would be the rule across the board for all the reigns, the feelings of the queen are secondary. It's very rare that a queen is able to really kind of conquer a mistress. You see it with Catherine de' Medici. The moment she has the chance after Henri II dies, she deals with the mistress and the mistress has to hightail it out. So if they get the chance, if they're back in control, they will deal with them very swiftly. But it's rare they get that chance to demonstrate that level of power.
1: I mean, I'm struck by what you say about the queen and the pregnancy. It makes perfect psychological sense. She doesn't want to see visible evidence of infidelity. But at the same time, especially if she loses five children, you can see why she would care for those that are existing. That's
2: the thing, you know, this argument about the attitude of parents to children in the early modern period and that old theory that oh, they don't have that connection to children because they don't want to invest emotionally in a child that they might lose. And you see time and again, that's not true. Even with Louis's sister-in-law, Lieselotte von der and she writes so touchingly about the children that she loses. And actually with her, her correspondence is so voluminous. And yet there is a gap in her correspondence at one point. And that's the silence of grief. That's when she's grieving. She doesn't write about it because she can't. So for Marie-Thérèse, for everyone to say that, okay, the loss of pregnancies in the early modern period was such a common experience, it doesn't lessen the emotional impact of it, I think, for them too. So, yeah, you're right in the sense that, yeah, a pregnant mistress is very much this hugely visible image of the king's infidelity. And then, of course, when the children do arrive, they're probably in the company of a governess or they're not there with their mother as such. The mother has more important things to do, which is get straight back to court life. And for Madame de Montespan, that becomes increasingly difficult. Every pregnancy apparently has a physical impact on her. And a lot of observers at the court are delighted to see that her looks are fading. Her looks are suffering as a result of these repeated pregnancies. She actually even inspires a new style at the court, which is very free-flowing, loose clothing which is to conceal not just the loss of her figure, as is noted by many at the time, but also the repeated pregnancies. So she tries to stay at court for as long as possible within a pregnancy and then only leave in the later months.
1: Gosh, the brutality of it all. You know, I'm feeling for her. But let's get some sense, before we think about the dissolution of her power, let's get a sense of how powerful she was because she's receiving extraordinary gifts. She has a place at court. Lisa Hilton has called her the real Queen of France. Was she more queen than the Queen? In terms of style, performance, yes, probably. Much
2: more in terms of the presentation of power. When it comes down to concrete power, then the Queen can at times stomp her foot down and have them kind of removed from her presence. There is a hierarchy there underneath all of this. And I think the way of seeing her as this real queen, certainly in the performance, even sometimes in the material acquisitions that they have. So famously, Madame de Montespan would have had 20 rooms at the palace, whereas the queen had 11. There would have been a huge amount of money diverted to Madame de Montespan's chateau at Clony. And even at one stage, you could see the kind of tension between her and Louise de La Valliere because they were fighting over who would get the best craftspeople for their apartments as well. And I think Madame de Montespan kind of kidnapped the craftsmen from Louise de La Valliere's apartments at one stage and Louis had to broker between them. And you can see then as well, in terms of the importance Louis gives to Madame de Montespan in terms of material goods, you know, even in the correspondence that... Louis has with his finance minister Colbert where he tells Colbert at the start of his letters have you sorted this out for Madame de Montespan she wants orange trees she wants a lot of them and get them to her is that done and as he says to Colbert you know how much this means to me all of this must be taken care of and then he moves on to matters of state after having addressed that issue too. You can see from the account books as well there are enormous amounts of money being spent on Versailles at that stage because the court, while it doesn't officially move there until 1682, it is very much there in situ in the 1670s onwards. So Versailles had been this kind of swampy kind of hunting lodge in the reign of his father in Louis XIII's reign. And it obviously becomes the bling of the Ancien Regime. And there's so much money diverted into this. So what's diverted for the mistresses Is very small in comparison, but any records I've seen in relation to perhaps what was spent on Louise de la Valliere in total over a number of years, it could amount to what would be spent on the Queen within one year. So, very significant amounts of money, but not overtaking the amount of money spent on the Queen. You also have then gifts of jewellery, which might be the first signal to the court of a change in status where you have a lady-in-waiting who suddenly turns up with the diamonds of a duchess. That's a signal. The wearing of pearls is very popular. The dress might change as well, but certainly then the acquisition of estates, of maybe rights to different territories, the accumulation of rents maybe, and certainly title then as well. So there's a lot going on for her. And then for Madame de Montespan, then there's favour. This is another huge part of the royal mistress's role. She is a means to approach the king. So a lot of the time, people will go to the royal mistress before they would go near the queen. Or indeed, they would regard the royal mistress as the better person to go to because she has the ear of the king every day, possibly three times a day. And in that respect, they know that she will be able to put forward their case if she's so inclined. Because you have examples whereby Madame de Montespan, if she likes you, she'll do it. But if she doesn't, She might tell you she did it and not do it at all. Like the Comte de Lazun, who's one of the captains in the king's guards who had designs on the king's first cousin, mademoiselle de Montpensier, la grande mademoiselle. And he went to her at one stage to petition. And she says, yes, yes, I'll go to the king. I'll make your case to the king. And he didn't believe her. So he hid under her bed and listened to her fill the king with a whole load of nonsense about the comte de la zone who was listening to all of this under the bed later on she said to him no i made you persistent and the king said this and the king said that and he said the king said nothing of the kind this is what happened and repeated the conversation that she had had with the king word, for word didn't really do him any good in the end he got packed off to prison but there's a lot of kind of negotiating going on and the mistress can be this key negotiator but she can be a very mischievous one too
1: yeah, she sounds like a really fascinating character. We get a sense of her charisma and her wit, but she's obviously a little wicked as well. I mean, yeah, she's...
2: her wickedness. I mean, in terms of her wickedness, she could be really wicked. We're not quite sure because she then becomes, in the late 1670s, embroiled in what's known as the Affair of the Poisons. And this is a huge scandal in Paris in the late 1670s, which kicks off with a woman called the Marquise de Brauvier, who is accused of, accused and convicted of poisoning her father and her brothers as a result of her own doomed kind of romantic ambitions, and ends up tortured, executed. But in the midst of her torture, then this whole kind of background story of the occult, basically, in late 1670s Paris starts to be revealed. And one woman in particular, Le Voisin, Catherine Desay, is revealed as this key kind of person at the centre of this web. They're regarded as selling poisons and they're, sometimes the poisons are referred to as inheritance powders because this is how you speed up things to get your inheritance. <laughs> Hundreds of people were dragged into this. The Lieutenant General of the police in Paris, the police force had been established in 1667, by Louis. This became a case that dragged in so many members of the nobility that eventually Louis had to shut down the investigation because it was just coming too close to home. And Madame de Montespan was named as a contact, as a client of Le Voisin. She had apparently gone to her, not for inheritance powders, but for aphrodisiacs to keep the king interested. And apparently, according to the court wags, all the pregnancies, all of this, that diminished this attraction that he had for her. There was rumors that black masses had been said on Madame de Montespan's part, that they had done all sorts of nefarious practices. And a Catholic priest was involved also, Etienne Giborg. So, in that respect, even the participation of a Catholic priest. There was questions over, you know, his ability to initiate transubstantiation over the materials that were used. And some of them were rumoured to have been products of abortions as well that were used in these masses. So there's a whole host of charges being levelled against people. And it becomes very real as well. There is a tribunal set up, a chambre ardente, the secret trial, basically. There's over 30 maybe executed as a result. Dozens more are imprisoned Not by trial, but usually by lettre de cachet, which is issued by the king. He can issue it alone. There's no judicial process. There's no term of imprisonment either. Many are imprisoned because they're regarded as selling poisons. Even some fortune tellers are imprisoned. And eventually, Louis becomes very, very aware of the physical danger he may have been exposed to. Some of the aphrodisiacs and the descriptions of the aphrodisiacs, the ingredients of them, really do kind of turn the stomach blood is involved in some of the aphrodisiacs as well and there is a definite shift then in his relationship with madame de montespan she's never tried she's never formally accused it's almost like she's nearly too big to fail for him to accuse her for her to be formally tried would have been an acknowledgement also of his inability to protect himself So it's a very, very unusual episode at the court. It's one that when it's shut down, I mean, it's incredible. Like so many people write about it. Madame de Sevigny is great as a source. She writes a lot about the execution, the original execution, the Marquise de Previer, and then the fallout of it at the court. But it must have been a time whereby people were very much, I think, uncertain of who they had been in contact with where their own position lay, what they may be accused of themselves then too. And poisoning was an old story at the court. Anytime anyone young died, there was always the suspicion who stood to gain from this death. So the most famous of which would have been Louis's sister-in-law Henrietta of England, who was married to his brother Monsieur. She died quite young, be at the age of 26, 27. And she, in her final day, called out, I have been poisoned. <laughs> so that set off things across the course of the time. She hadn't. But the rumours of poisoning, the rumours of witchcraft, and of course witchcraft at this time is undergoing a redefinition. It's no longer seen as reasonable to believe in these things. And yet here you have the remnants of those old practices posing very much mortal danger to people in the highest positions of power.
1: That's a really fascinating incident. And it also raises questions about faith, which you touched on the fact that this is a double adultery, that when we've got Louise de la Valliere, the king is committing adultery, but he's a man, you know, whereas in this case, we've got a husband involved, we've got the Marquis de Montespan. And I wonder how this was seen at the time by the Catholic Church.
2: Yes, the double adultery is when the king is involved with a married woman. So this is a step too far, apparently, for many at the court. One thing for Louis to commit adultery, he's almost kind of being given a compensation because he's given himself a marriage for the good of the kingdom and for peace and whatever other kind of high-minded ideas there might be. But with his mistress then, she is married and there's two theologians at the court, Bishop Bossuet and Pierre Baudeloup. And Louis has to be very mindful of what he does now in relation to Montespan. Because Bossuet is one of his key apologists for absolutism, for this divine right of him. So at one point, he is very much key in supporting the king in his role and supporting the monarchy and the divine right. And on the other hand, then, he has to balance out then what Bossuet says about the king's private life. And Bossuet apparently can give a real kind of thumping sermon when he wants to. You know, standing room only when Bossuet decides to let rip. And in 1675, Louis does end up sending Madame de Montespan away. He tries to restore himself. Even before any of the Affair of the Poison stuff kicks off, he sends her off and banishes her. So the court seems quite kind of happy with this. And it's telling as well the fact that Madame de Monde doesn't seem to have a huge number of fans who come to her rescue either. She's kind of rubbed people up the wrong way as well. You know, she's important. She's powerful if you get on her right side. But there's many more who have gotten on the wrong side of her and are happy to see her gone. So the Catholic Church, yeah, there's a very troubled relationship. There's a troubled relationship anyway between Louis and the papacy. And then with his church, he has to balance out that divinity, that role that he's meant to play, but also this very human failing, this submission to his own desire, to his own passions. There's a number of different priests and confessors at the court who refuse at times to give, not so much him, or what they did say to her at one stage, will refuse confession, but refuse to give confession or the Eucharist to Madame de Montespan. I think she goes in for a confession at one stage, And the priest says to her, is this the Madame de Montespan who scandalises all of France and brings shame and everything else and sends her packing? So that relationship with the church, it's one of these things about the position of the royal mistress, that there's a two-sided thing to it, where you have the mistress as this representation of the strength of the king, the virility of the king, this quality of him as this lover, a prowess. And then on the other hand, it's a representation of his weakness of how there is this compromise of the crown via the king's kind of human qualities. And that harkens as well to the whole theory of the king's two bodies. And the theory, of course, that the king has an eternal body, the body politic, and then there is the physical body of the king, the mortal body of the king.
1: Now you've talked about Madame de Montespan's influence waning, and I would like to discuss what happened after that in just a moment.
0: OK, Tristan, you got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell The Ancients podcast. What is The Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names.
2: It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction.
0: We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit, wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: In this edition of Not Just the Tudors, I'm talking to Dr. Linda Kernan-Knowles, about the power and precarity of the royal mistresses at the court of Louis 14th We've had Madame de Montespan, and is the next mistress, rather briefly, Mademoiselle Angelique de Fontange Now,
2: Angelique is a very, very brief affair because she dies quite young. She comes to the court. She's again, I think, another lady-in-waiting. This is the key thing. Noble families love to get their daughters into these positions at the court, whether it's a lady-in-waiting, some kind of management position in one of the households of either the queen or the king's sister-in-law, madame. They're the highest ranking women at the court and therefore you would be at the centre of the court with them. So Angelique de Fontange really steps in, in that 1679, 1680, at that point where Madame de Montespan has become a major problem. She's very young. She's only 18. The king at this stage is in his 40s. So quite a departure in terms of age and apparently not very bright. Very beautiful, but not very bright. Louis just likes her in terms of appearances, I think. Not great conversationalist by all accounts. They have one child together and she dies, I think, soon after the birth of that child. I don't think that child survives either. Madame de Montespan is put out by this enormously. Fontaine, she said, she's as pretty as an angel but as stupid as a basket. And she doesn't have to worry about her long. Because unfortunately then she does die at the age of about 20. That's a brief affair and she is recognised. She is considered one of the official Royal mistresses. You know, when we talk about what makes a royal mistress official, it's appearance to be beside the king almost. You don't have an official proclamation. It's kind of done through the ceremony of the court. So, for instance, if they're at the theatre, the queen will sit on the king's right side, the mistress will sit on his left.
1: Oh, I had no idea. So, they actually appear in public as a trio.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If they go on manoeuvres, perhaps they will be with them as well. So, there will be these public presentation of them. Even for the King's Day, and you think about Louis XIV's daily schedule of ritual at the court, it's fascinating because people would say, well, you can tell the time by what the King is doing. He had a very regimented day. He worked very, very hard. Louis XIV put in, you know, a lot of hours into governance and maintaining. He never took on Prime Minister after the death of Mazarin, 1661. So when he went to see the mistress. That was known at the court. He is with Louise. He is with Madame de Montespan. He is seeing Madame de Maintenon. Very, very public. Very, very aware. Now, Louis Fourteenth. I think the reason why we might think of the royal mistress kind of hitting an apex of sorts during this reign is because the ritual of the court hits an apex at this point. Louis Fourteenth goes in for ritual ceremony. Routine, the levee, the coucher, all of these things—the rising in the morning, the setting in the evening—like no other monarch. His great grandson Louis the Fifteenth really doesn't go in for it whatsoever. Louis the Fourteenth is a very tough act to follow, but Louis the Fifteenth really shies away from this. He does not like the public ritual of it. So the fact that Louis, in a way, I find him such a kind of inaccessible character at times because I think he plays the game of monarchy so well. You have to portray this sense of authority and yet retain this air of mystery. He gives them transparency in showing them his life, and yet he holds so much back. He's such a hard character to read, even with all the observations, even with the memoirs that he leaves, but the memoirs possibly ghost-written, and even within them, the instructions to the Dauphin, He talks about don't let yourself be swayed by mistresses. Don't let yourself be influenced by beauty or desire. So you get a little bit of an insight, but not much. He's a real closed off character, I think,
1: at times. Well, that plays into thinking about the last important mistress at his court. My impression is that she's wielded political influence. Tell us about her and what you make of her.
2: She is a real unusual version of a royal mistress. In fact, some would say not really a royal mistress at all. I would class her as a royal mistress. She is Madame de Maintenon, uh, Françoise d'Aubigny. She famously born just outside the prison in New York, as her father was in prison for, some would say, for debt, so she had gone against and plotting against Richelieu. She spends part of her youth in the French West Indies, in Martinique. She comes back to Paris, where her godmother, is very influential in setting her up within kind of the intellectual society of Paris at the time. By the age of 16, she has met the poet Paul Scarron, who's very well known for the wrong reasons because he's been a satirist during the Fronde. This is the civil uprising, civil war against Louis XIV during his minority between 1648 and 52. By 1660, she's widowed by that stage and she is in receipt of a pension from Louis's mother, Anne of Austria, and by 1669, she has gained reputation as being very discreet, quite respectable, quite pious in her own way. Her religious background is even very unusual. Her grandfather had been a very prominent Protestant, a Huguenot, and yet she's brought up both as Protestant at one stage and then Catholic, and of course is very resolutely Catholic then for the rest of her life. By 1669, then she had come to the attention of Madame de Montespan and the king. And she's appointed as a governess to the royal bastards. So the children of Madame de Montespan, and in particular to the Duc de Men, the first one. She becomes very, very devoted to that child. The Duc de Men had been born with an injury to his foot and he needed a lot of medical attention in his early years. And Madame de Maintenon, she's very devoted to him. Louis took notice of this older, more kind of discreet more sober woman, a completely different character than Madame de Montespan. The interaction between the two must have been a, something to behold. And Louis slowly comes to appreciate this calm, devoted presence in the lives of his natural children. He's particularly taken with her devotion to the care of the Duc de Men because he's very fond of the Duc de Men, even though the Duc de Men does cause his own problems later on. But she takes him away to various places across France to take the waters, you know, these places that are renowned for their healthful properties. And as time goes on, by the end of the 1670s, he has come to rely upon her as a confidant of sorts, particularly as Montespan's behaviour and reputation becomes ever more erratic and unstable. And I think that's what really is the issue at stake for Louis and Montespan there is a volatility that volatility that drew him to her to begin with has now become a liability and Mantenon then becomes this rock that he relies upon that he goes to for advice the whole question over whether she's a royal mistress is tied to the question of a physical relationship between the two and generally speaking it's accepted that there was no physical relationship between them until they got married And that's where you come into another separate category of royal mistress. Maria Theresa, in her last year of life, as I mentioned, totally happy with the king, devoted. But she passed away in July 1683 and probably by October. We have no paperwork on a marriage, but we have a couple of indications through correspondence there's a couple of witnesses at the wedding, including the kings, valet Bonton, and the priest, but not proclaimed queen. It's a morganatic marriage. It's in secret. And Louis XIV has done something very, very strange. He has contracted a marriage purely for himself. And he's young. Whether it's a great love, it's certainly not the great passion that was seen with de Montespan. It's not that volatile passion. It's a very calm very stable one. And, you know, a lot would say, well, she's there for 30 years. Well, really, she's there for 40 years. Because from 1675 onwards, where we see the first very dramatic display of favour from Louis, which is to give her her own estate and to elevate her title, for 40 years, she's at his side. And the relationship seems to have been very, very steady. You don't see these kind of ups and downs, banishments, exiles, nothing like that. She's a very steady presence at his side. Many regard her as almost like a first minister by his side as well. She is usually maligned by those outside of France, particularly the Huguenot exiles. They charge her as being the reason why he revokes the Edict of Nantes, which revokes kind of nominal religious toleration in France in 1685. She is probably loaded with a lot of bad press because traditionally the royal mistress would be a way of criticizing the king without criticizing the king.
1: And it's fascinating to me that we think about Louis the 14th as being this man who has so many mistresses. And yet as you're pointing out, for the vast majority of his life he's actually with this one woman who he does actually marry. Yeah. Yeah, this is the thing and it becomes this way of almost characterizing
2: the court then in hindsight. You know, people kind of think about Madame de Maintenon as heralding in this dampening almost of the vivacity of court life. But again, that's an oversimplification of it as well. I mean, Louis is entering into a different phase of his monarchy then too, even in terms of his involvement in military endeavours. I mean, he's quite a belligerent king, certainly. But he is entering into kind of the later years of his life. He's adapting. His relationship reflects that. Change and that evolution, perhaps in the reign itself too, so yeah, this idea that perhaps he's a bit of a gadabout or he's slighty no, he's quite towards the end, I mean half of his life is spent with Madame de Maintenon, and in many respects, I always wonder to what extent our view of the royal mistress in the early modern period is shaped by what comes out after the revolution, and even the pamphlets of the revolution too in how they characterise feminine power in the Ancien Régime. And I think it's really interesting to look at the example of Marie Antoinette in relation to the mistresses, because, of course, Louis XVI never takes a mistress. And some would say it's to the detriment of Marie Antoinette, because she is then the target of so much of the criticism. Had there been a mistress, the mistress would have taken, would have deflected. During the revolution, the pamphlets attacking Marie Antoinette draw lines between her and previous royal mistresses, rather than queens. They invoke the imagery of royal mistresses corrupting male power, and that she is taking on that mantle too.
1: So mistresses actually have a very important political role in playing the lightning rod to the royal couple. They can be. And yes, yeah, they
2: can be used then, not so much to protect the monarchy or to protect them from criticism, but really attract even more criticism then also as well. You know, even in Louis XIV's time, you know, at a time where he's completely finished and with Louise de la Valliere and Madame de Montespan and Mademoiselle de Fontange, she has departed the world. They are used by caricaturists in the 1690s and early 1700s, and they are used in the caricatures All four of them with Louis XIV, all of them kind of controlling him. One of them is fascinating. It's from 1690. And it's actually an example of like a play on fake news at the time where it shows Louis XIV in his deathbed. He's dying of embarrassment because he's fallen for the fake news that William of Orange has been killed in battle and he's found out that he's been led astray but around him you have the devil and there's a whole host of characters but all the mistresses are by his bedside weeping so this sense that even when a mistress is gone the afterlife of a mistress is very strong they almost like you know still remain on there as this reminder of his human failings of his vulnerability and I think that memory that afterlife that legacy of a royal mistress the institution itself. Yeah, I think it is very powerful during the revolution.
1: This has been a wonderful and fascinating look at these people who seem to have been so important, this official but not official. There's a liminality about them and yet this sense of being precarious at all times as well. And it's been a real insight into the nature of power, I think, in 17th century France. So thank you so much for this tour. It's been fun. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to
2: scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince.
1: Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful.